1: get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash
0: welcome back to not another mummy podcast with me alison perry In both of my pregnancies, I've suffered from morning sickness, but I can't even imagine what it must be like to suffer from hyperemesis gravidarum, extreme morning sickness. My guest today, Rhea Clark, does. She suffered from HG during her pregnancy two years ago and says that her experience has had a very lasting effect on her. Ria is a doctor specialising in women's health, working in obstetrics and gynaecology, and she's on Instagram as Doctor and Mummy, talking about everything from health to women's issues to racial issues. Here's what she had to say to me. So I'm here with Rhea. Welcome Ria to the podcast. Hi. Hello. Um, so you're a doctor in women's health. I am indeed. Um, tell me a little bit about your job and tell me a little bit why you uh, decided that was the career for you.
1: Okay, so my job involves looking after women during the lifetime of reproductive health and before and after. So that involves everything from something like problems that can happen when people are children related to reproductive organs as women get older problems with periods things like fertility um people mostly associate it with pregnancy yeah there's a whole scope of things outside of pregnancy that we deal with um things like gynecological cancer cervical cancer ovarian cancer endometrial um Problems associated with the menopause. it's huge, like a
0: massive scope of stuff that you must be an expert on. Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't go so far as to say expert. I'm working towards it. Yeah, yeah. So are you a junior doctor or are you, uh, what's your
1: actual job title? So it's, I am a junior doctor. The title of junior doctor is really misleading because it basically means anybody that isn't a consultant. Right. So I've been a doctor for almost eight years. So it's not like, oh, I'm the
0: intern. Yeah. It's like you're actually, you've been doing it for eight years. You know your stuff, you're experienced.
1: I'm experienced enough. I'm still, I'm definitely getting there. But yeah, so someone who's just fresh out of medical school and someone who's almost a consultant are both called junior doctors. That's
0: really misleading, isn't it?
1: It's Yeah. So the, there are smaller terms that are used sort of colloquially and so that would be registrar which is the grade below consultant okay. and I'm sort of a baby registrar so just at the beginning of being a registrar okay. but I think it's good to be upfront about where you are in your experience especially on social media.
0: Yeah yeah of course. So are you based in a hospital? Do you have every day do you have different people who have been referred to you to or, or to your team uh, how does it work in terms of your day to day workload? Yeah, so my specialty is mainly hospital based,
1: um, and it's very it's very varied. So, for example, yesterday I was on call on labour ward, so that means looking after women during labour who may need the help of an obstetrician as opposed to those who are midwife led. Mm-hmm. Um, tomorrow in the morning I am doing gynaecological surgery with one of the consultants and then in the afternoon I'm doing antenatal clinic with a different consultant. So it's really really varied.
0: That must be brilliant that it is so varied and that You know, you you just mustn't ever get bored. No, it's really hard to get bored. I think you know you're in the right specialty if you can look
1: at a majority of the things and go, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I can learn something there. That's so nice. And I guess you probably are always learning. You're always... You have to be. If you're not learning, then you need to get out, I think... Um, the older I get and the more I look at senior colleagues, the more I realise that we're all still learning. And watching them talk to other colleagues and go, actually, I wasn't sure what to do with that case, um, is really refreshing. Yeah, it must be. Uh,
0: So as well as that, you've got a two-year-old son? I do. He's two and a half. Two and a half. Um, How would you describe family life? I mean, it must be... I always feel really bad for asking mums how do you juggle your job and and being a mum because it sounds quite patronising but it's actually it it can be a struggle to keep those balls in the air and to you know keep everything going smoothly. Yeah it is Um, I
1: love I love having a family it's a great balance to having a really intense job Um, that said I couldn't do it without the support of my family or I could but it would be a lot harder I'm lucky that my husband is fantastic and I it's a balance talking about this too much because I feel like he's an equal parent and he does his job mm-hmm. in that he looks after our son when I'm at work um, in a way that probably some, some other dads don't in that if I'm on nights, if my son's up all night, then he just has to deal with it because he can't call me and say, I don't know what to do of because course. I can't talk him through that. He yeah. just has to get on with it. Um, so it takes a lot of partnership. Um, and I'm very lucky that I have someone that just takes that on the chin and doesn't expect a reward for doing it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So, yeah, I I find it a struggle. I'm quite honest about the fact that I do find it really difficult and that the things I'm able to do, I'm able to do because of sacrifices that I or someone else in my family
0: has to make. But it's a good balance. And how do you find social media? Kind of, uh, you know, what, what kind of part does it play? Because I, you know, I follow you on Instagram and... I feel like you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're very, you seem very much about the captions and it's almost like I feel like it's a little, little mini blog posts that you write and you cover, you, you sort of talk so eloquently about so many different Subjects, whether it's your family life or whether it's, you know, work out things or, you know, issues like women's issues, like so many different things. How do you find that? Is that a release for you? Is it something that you rely on, you know, to kind of, you know, have almost like a sort of creative element to your life? Um, I've always liked writing. I I like it as a creative outlet. I thought
1: about having a blog, but I, I worry that I'd get sucked into producing content for content's sake rather than it being spontaneous and just writing about whatever comes into my head, yeah. which is very much what my feed is. It's a complete mishmash of things I come across, things I think about. I think that's
0: the best way, though. I mean, and I think that even if you blog, that's the best way to blog. I mean, I I have got a blog and quite often people say to me, oh, so, you know, do you blog every day or do you do, you know, X number of posts a week? And I'm like, no, yeah. I blog when I want to. I blog when I feel like, oh, I've got this thing that I really want to talk about about you know that's when you produce something really good and it's the same on instagram when you have that urge of i want to communicate this even if it's something silly like a little something that you know your son has done i guess or that kind of thing that
1: balance like some of the things i write are quite deep um and quite introspective especially if it's about something sensitive like race or about sensitive medical topics but it's also about the frivolous things it's about you know negotiating with my son about having a nap Because that that is real life. And it's it's nice for me to have somewhere where I can share those things. It originally started as a secret account when I first got pregnant. And I was going to post about me doing yoga and like being this yummy mummy who did all these amazing things really that just didn't happen and it kind of evolved from there but it was a place where I could talk about how happy I was about being pregnant without people going oh she's talking about being pregnant again
0: that's a funny thing though isn't it that so many of us go through I think when you either become pregnant or become a mum you don't want to be that bore who's always you know that baby bore or just and then I think you get to that point where you think, actually, I'm just going to talk about it because it's pretty cool and I'm all right with that.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that on the way here, about going, I just really, really like being a mum and having a son. And to say that sometimes feels a bit nauseating, I guess. But we, I guess it's nice to move beyond the culture where we're just complaining about yeah. things all the time and not just saying okay parenting is really hard but I really like it
0: yeah that's okay isn't it it's it's really interesting actually because I've got an 8 year old and when she was a baby I found it really hard and I had PND but didn't realise it it was never diagnosed but it was only when she was 18 months I looked back and thought oh my goodness I definitely had PND and I'm coming out of it now Um, But now I've got uh, six-month-old babies, uh, twins, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like I'm only now almost like seeing what everyone else can see in terms of having a baby and the joy that it can bring. And, exactly, you know, eight years into being a mum and I'm still learning and I'm still realising that actually there is joy to be had in this and it doesn't have to be all, you know, a struggle and hard and, oh, you know, like complaining about it all the time and, that's okay yeah yeah absolutely Um one thing that I saw you writing about on your Instagram recently which really interested me was um, you talking about um, the death rates with black women um, during childbirth versus white women yeah um, and you were quoted on BBC News talking about this, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, I was, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the the research and what's come out just recently. So there's an annual, annual
1: report called the Embrace Report that looks at perinatal mortality. And perinatal mortality means deaths and, well, it looks at morbidity as well, but basically deaths that occur during pregnancy and for the first year afterwards and the reason is Right it so it's pregnancy that, in the
0: first year
1: absolutely. so it's not just during childbirth. Not just no right. and it's trying to identify causes any trends that we as uh, medical professionals can work towards to try and reduce those awful outcomes um, and some there are some things that are identified that aren't related to factors like race for example um, something called postpartum hemorrhage so bleeding a lot after you have a baby is associated with bad outcomes so recognising that increasing training for staff making people more aware of that is a good thing it's something yeah. that has emerged and it's not it's not a new thing this isn't suddenly come out of nowhere um just because people have picked up on it this year yeah um but yes the statistic is that in the UK black women are five times more likely to die during that period than white women and Asian women are twice as likely to die. Which is terrifying, isn't it? It's absolutely terrifying, yeah. It's really scary. And yes, the total numbers are small, and so I think it's really important to highlight that. We don't want to scare people unnecessarily. But anybody dying at five times the rate of someone else deserves to have that looked into and for the question to be winded and asked, why is that happening?
0: And how much of that is uh, medical factors and how much of it do you think is racial bias? Well, that's that's the million dollar question, I think, because what we
1: know is that there are biological factors that black women and Asian women are more vulnerable to. Um, and that so, what, is, so what kind of things are they more likely to suffer from? So a really good example is gestational diabetes. Nice. So when you go for your booking appointment in early pregnancy, the midwife will ask you a series of questions to help stratify your risk of different things. And if you come from an, a group that's at increased risk, for example, if you have someone in your close family who's had gestational diabetes, um, if you're a high BMI, and if you're black or Asian, there are other factors as well, but you will be offered a screen to test for gestational diabetes. Now, that's not offered to everybody because we know there are different levels of risk. So that is a biological factor that we know affects people disproportionately. Okay. What we don't know is how much racial bias is involved in the high death rates. But I think it's really naive to not consider it. Of course. Which is what my point has been and why other people have been vocal about it. We know in the US there are lots of examples of um, the bias in healthcare. And even if they stratify for things like um, BMI and income, black women are still more likely to die.
0: Yeah. So what can be done? What what needs to happen? Is it is it a case of asking the question why is this happening, and speaking to the health professionals involved and finding out more, or what, what is it? That, how, how can we stop this from happening?
1: I think that's a start. I think we need to be talking about it, which is which is great. I'm here. We're talking about it. Um, listening. So talking is important. Listening is even more important. Listening to Black women and hearing what they're saying, and not discounting it and going well you know you're also it's also because of this and well you are poor and you do live in a council flat yes that way may well be true but if someone's telling you that they were told something that they can relate to their experience of being black or asian we need to take that on board we need to think about cultural competency from very early on. So in medical school, and I, and I know that there are some medical schools that look at things like um, unconscious bias, which we all have. Yeah, of course. Everybody has that. It's naive to expect us not to, yeah. but to think about how that affects us as individuals. How does it affect us as institutional systems? And what impact is that having on on the women that we look after? It's tricky
0: though, isn't it? Because with, with, with uh, listening to, you know, to people and asking these questions, there's a big, there's a lot of discomfort involved with that, which is why it's not happening, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: because people feel <laughs> awkward. And when you talk about things like privilege, when you talk about racial bias, people who, who, who think I'm a good person, I care about people, I work really hard in my job. I'm not racist. Because racism is someone shouting in the street, someone calling you a horrible name. It's understanding the scope of racial bias and things like microaggressions Mm -hmm. and how subtle it can be and how people who experience that every day can can feel when that happens and you may only see it as an off, off the um, risk comment but if that happens all the time and it makes you disengage from a service then no no one shouted at you no one's called you an offensive word but then if you're not getting the health care that you need you might be more likely to have a bad outcome yeah so it's yeah. really opening up the conversation and yes people will feel uncomfortable
0: but women are dying so people just need to get over that. And this is nothing new. This is just that this research has come out for the first time in the UK. Is that right?
1: Well, this uh, this um, report is, is released annually. And thinking about the report the year before, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they weren't that dissimilar.
0: Right. Why is it only now being picked up on then? Is it just because it just happened to be picked up in the news and it's kind of had a bit of a snowball effect. I
1: I think people were talking about it before but I think what has changed is the use of things like social media mm. and the and people speaking out. I I hesitate to say that celebrities talking about more things has more gravitas, but if someone like Beyonce, if someone like Serena Williams speaks out about their experience and says, "Look, I am a black woman with money, with high profile, and I was still treated differently because I i feel because of my race. Yeah. Then that makes people sit up and go, but Beyonce. Yeah. I mean, have you seen Netflix? <laughs> that happened to her. Yeah. Um. So whilst it's, Sometimes frustrating that it takes something like that for people to pay attention. If people are paying attention, then good. Let's change things while people while people are listening. Because when people forget about this next week, people will still be dying.
0: Well, I've heard people saying quite quite a few times recently is that you know diversity is trendy right now. It's Mm. you know it's uh, you know companies or you know you know media TV shows. It's all it's all about you know being seen to be inclusive. And that is kind of worrying if that is the case, because actually it needs to be a trend that only increases and only builds momentum. It shouldn't be something that this week we're talking about and next week we're back to the way we were. Yeah, we have to be careful of tokenism. And so if there's a
1: bandwagon that people want to jump on in order to seem to be, appear woke, yeah, then that's not going to help anyone. And I think that's why black and Asian women need to be involved in driving the change forward, because they will unfortunately be invested in it in a way that passers-by aren't. So I think, I think we need to be careful of people about what people's motivations are, um, but this is a long term thing. This is bigger than social media. While social, social media is helping bring about change, if Instagram explodes tomorrow and it doesn't exist, I mean, I'll be annoyed all my photos are gone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but the issues will still be there. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Um, now when you were pregnant uh, two and a half years ago, three years ago, three years ago, three yeah. years ago, um, you suffered from, and I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm sure, hyperemesis gravidarum. I did indeed, and you said it correctly. I feel like it sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Hyperemesis
1: gravidarum. (laughs) If only there was a spell that undid it.
0: Oh, no, I can imagine. Well, you know, I can only imagine. Um, tell Tell me what it was like, because some people describe it as being like bad morning sickness, but is that almost like an insult?
1: I don't know what bad morning sickness is like, because I've only been pregnant once, but I don't think, I don't feel like that comes close. I... It's really hard to describe it to people who have, have never been there. But if you've ever been nauseous, if you've ever had food poisoning and you think about that level of despair, it's not just the nausea or the vomiting, it's the impact on your mental and physical health as well. The, the days I used to spend lying on the bathroom floor or having a plate next to me in the bathroom because there was no point moving and my husband used to carry me up and down the stairs for a while because I couldn't walk.
0: You're kidding.
1: Um, The... Long-term impact for lots of women. So lots of women suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because of hyperemesis and its impact. Um, If you look at the gaps between children of women that have hyperemesis, they quite often have a big gap because they either can't bear to go through it again or um, the logistics that you have to put in place before considering having another child, knowing what having one has done Mm. are such that it has the consequences beyond just the pregnancy, but it was, it was absolutely awful.
0: And how long did, did it go on for, for you? How, how many weeks or months? So it started when I was
1: eight weeks, which is slightly later than most women. They usually get it a bit earlier and it lasted, it, it wasn't as severe all the way through, um, but I was off work until I was around seventeen weeks.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, so you you just could not work through it. It wasn't, no, no no it wasn't feasible for you to
1: get through a day a day of work. No, I I just I just couldn't function. I didn't get dressed. I couldn't wash. I couldn't. I didn't eat. Um, I left the house to go to the GP to go to the hospital. Um, and other than that, I just didn't
0: move. I I couldn't. I couldn't function. When you describe it like that, you can. You can kind of understand why there are a certain percentage of women who have to terminate their pregnancy because of because of this,
1: yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate not to be in that position, but I've met women in that position. I hold no judgment towards them whatsoever. I think that there is a huge problem with recognizing how serious high premises can be. Women used to die of high premises before we were able to give fluids into into women 's veins. Um, and I no, women, no woman has a termination lightly, whatever the reason. But these terminations are often wanted pregnancies. Yeah. And so to have to deal with that as a treatment, which is what women are doing it for, as a therapeutic
0: way to stop how bad this feels, mm. it's awful. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, did you ever get to the point where you were admitted and had to have intravenous fluids? or?
1: Yeah, so I was admitted when I was eight weeks um, and... I am um, one of the few people that is allergic. Well, allergic's the wrong word. That has a reaction to most anti-sickness medications. Oh, no. Um, which means I can't take most of them. Which, sod's law, that is exactly the sort of thing that would happen to me.
0: Oh, that is just the worst. So there was
1: one that I could try, a drug called undanzitron, which is very difficult to get because of a preconception. It's really expensive and, it, and it's not. But it means it's really hard to get hold of. I had to beg
0: for it. Right. Um, and that didn't work. Do you think that, do you think that being a doctor helped you because you were able to have those sort of conversations with a certain level of knowledge? Um, I think it helped up to a
1: point, but I don't think I, I don't think I necessarily got better care. I actually found some of my care from colleagues quite disappointing really and um, so i can only imagine what it's like for women that that can't advocate for
0: themselves and maybe don't have insight into what the treatment options are is that do you think that's because of workload i mean i'm i'm one of those people that when i'm in a hospital and I'm feeling a little bit ignored, or I'm feeling, you know, like someone's forgotten to do the rounds, or give, forgotten to give me my pain medication, or whatever it is, I'm very forgiving, because I always think they're overstretched, you know, they're understaffed, It's not, they're doing their best. Um, do you think that your experience there was because of that, or do you think that there were other factors at play? We are overstretched, and
1: And I get that. And I'm like that, too, because I go, I know what it's like when I'm having a bad day and I'm trying and I'm juggling and making trying to make sure everybody gets good care. I've been there. Um, So, yes, there's always an element of that in the NHS all day, every day. But there is also a a conception about the kind of illness that hyperemesis gravidarum is, the kind of women that are affected. Um, And what is that? That women are malingerers that they have psychological issues that it's their way of expressing that they don't want to be pregnant um that they um just can't cope with being pregnant and they just need to get on with it and stop complaining and have you heard this have you heard these views being being expressed oh yeah 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 very much so it made it made me angry before i got pregnant um and even when i was in hospital i mean my my cannula fell out which is the instrument that's used into a vein to give fluids and someone was told well, you can only have it back if you need it okay.
0: and I said well
1: why wouldn't why wouldn't I need it I can't keep food or fluids down and I wasn't that polite when I said it Good. Um, but there is definitely a conception a, a preconception about high hyper, high premises and that means women are starting on the back foot mm. when you're already vulnerable you're having to fight and I hear, and um, there's a charity called Pregnancy Sickness Support, which is absolutely amazing. And they hear all sorts from women about the things that they've been told by medical professionals. And it's such a shame, because whilst drugs aren't always a magical cure, what can make a difference is compassion and kindness, and that doesn't cost anything. No.
0: Do you think then that it's just an area of women's health that needs more research and more more time dedicated to it
1: absolutely yeah and there was some research published I think it was 2017 which was one of the first research articles that showed a possible gene that causes hyperemesis wow and one of the biggest things that would change conceptions is preconceptions is if a cause were found yeah. so if and that's a shame because we should believe women without there having to be a specific gene but if there is a gene then there's hope for therapies that can help cure this yeah so there are there are new developments and th- and that's fascinating to think that they might be able to find a reason behind it and therefore find a way
0: to um make it easier and do you think that obviously you know doing the job that you do are you aware that in general less research has been done over the years you know into women's health issues and conditions
1: i think yeah i think that's true i think that women's health is neglected is the wrong word probably not as invested in as highly as other things talk to a woman with endometriosis and she'll tell you how long it took her to
0: get diagnosed yeah i'm there i have put my hands in the air yeah <laughs> it took me years to be diagnosed yeah. and i know so many women with a similar story yeah and
1: the stories are really similar and it's heartbreaking because there's a spectrum of endometriosis and it affects women differently mm-hmm. but something i hear a lot is how how long they had symptoms for yeah yeah. Um, and I wonder if that I wonder if that would
0: happen if it affected a different population. Which is so frustrating that, you know, women do have to have that many conversations, that many doctor's appointments, you know, to be kind of sent off with, you know, misdiagnosis or yeah, and, yeah. And, and be suffering and, you know, in pain or discomfort just Absolutely. just because of that. Yeah.
1: So I think I think we're talking about it more, and that's always that's always a good thing. Um, and again, it's it's somewhere where bias comes in, and we need to unpack that and think why are we not taking women seriously? Because a psychologist once upon a time said that women with abdominal pain were hysterical. Mm. You know, can we not move beyond that? It's two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, and I know it's deeper than that. There will be people listening going, "Well, that that's an oversimplification." Yes, it is because it's a podcast, and I'm not a researcher. But... <laughs> yeah we need to we need to move forward
0: absolutely um so going back to your um how you were feeling during pregnancy um what kind of I mean you described that your husband would have to you know help you up up down the stairs mm-hmm. what kind of support was he giving you it must have been really hard for him to watch you i mean not as hard as it was for you don't get me wrong but (laughs) but what kind of support was you know were you getting from him or from your family around you? It was just an unwavering sense that they were always there and that they didn't judge me
1: and that they didn't expect too much or ask me to be what I couldn't be because what I couldn't be was ecstatically happy about being pregnant all the time which is what I wanted more than mm. anything I was so excited and actually some of my posts from when I first got pregnant are still on my account and you can go back and see where I'm like and now I've got vitamins and now I got this before I got sick
0: it was, so it was an anonymous account then it was yeah So you were obviously being quite open very early about your pregnancy
1: yeah yeah because I felt like I could be because you know it was just for me so yeah. it's a bit like a diary yeah um, so my husband was amazing. He used to, once I went back to work, I couldn't, I couldn't go in the kitchen and I couldn't go in the fridge, mm. um, because of smells and things. So he used to make my lunch for me every day, just make a little packed lunch for me. Um, and he used to come to my hospital appointment and never put any pressure on me, I guess, and was just, High premise isn't it nice at the best of times? Having someone being sick all the time and saying, Well, no, I don't want to eat that, and no, I don't want to go there, and can you not wear that aftershave? And I've thrown all the cleaning things in the bin because they smell and they remind me of being pregnant. And that, I mean, that's now. Yeah. We're yeah,
0: I'll bet. Are, are there still things that you smell or things that you do that immediately take you back to that time Yep, can't eat mini cheddars oh i'm the same i sorry i didn't have high premises but just from normal morning sickness yeah. i ate mini cheddars loads yep. because it was like the only thing that that it was like bland carby, and now can't yeah. touch them so yeah
1: that's that product <laughs> placement ad i was gonna get is never I gonna know. come now <laughs> so no mini cheddars uh there's brandy yogurt i can't eat there's some lavender cleaning things that I can't go anywhere near. So those things are quite triggering. But just even if I feel a bit nauseous because I think maybe I've eaten something... Automatically, all the feelings come flooding back, wow. and that has implications for. You know, I would have loved to. I always said to my husband, "I'm going to have four kids." I mean, he shriveled up in a corner and cried at that point. But <laughs> I would have loved a big family. It has an impact on that. Um, I would have liked to have children close together. It's had an impact on that. It just affects. It affects a lot more than I assumed it would at the time.
0: It's crazy, isn't it? Because you, you, you do think, oh, well, you know, it's only a few weeks. And once you're through it, you're through it. And, yeah. you know, when you have the baby, you know, it's worth it in the end. And you're just so grateful to be pregnant. And as long
1: as the baby's OK, as long as the baby's OK. That,
0: that frustrates me, that as long as the baby is OK thing, because yeah. actually it's kind of like devaluing you and your feelings and your experience. Absolutely. And it means that you're just a vessel for a child because...
1: If as long as the baby's okay, that's fine. Then it doesn't matter what happens to you, surely. So why are you complaining? And I hear women saying that a lot at work and coming from the best place possible. And what they mean is, please look after my baby. Of course. And of course you say that because you're scared and you're vulnerable. And I always say to them, my job is to look after you and the baby. And if I focus on you right now, then you can continue to focus on the baby.
0: Yeah.
1: Because that's all they want to do. But women are not vessels for having babies. Some women never have babies. Some women never want to. Some women can't. They are no less women than anybody else.
0: Absolutely. So, yeah, that makes me mad. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you there. Um, and do you think that in terms of like the long-term effects that this has had for you, do you think that that's something that will fade? Do you think that that feeling, I mean, it, 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 I guess you, you, you don't know, it's like asking you to look into the future yeah. and, and, you know, predict what's going to happen. I guess all you can do is hope that th- th- those feelings will fade. I, I hope so. But when I think about other traumatic
1: things I've been through from, through my life, and I won't expand too much because that's for my autobiography after I win Strictly. Um, but <laughs> I love it. That's planning for you. Absolutely. Dream big. <laughs> but when I think about other traumatic events in my life and they're not sharp and the memories are more blunt, and with high premises, while some of it has faded, I can still remember a lot more of it than I want to. Mm. Um, and I think I think I will always remember. And when I talk to women who are in their 60s or
0: 70s, for example, who had high premises, they can talk about it like it was yesterday. Wow. Do you think that it's something that, you know, you should almost be going to therapy to be dealing with all of this?
1: I think for some women, absolutely. Therapy is is really important. And I think if you need to, then you should do that. Um, I'm quite lucky that I can talk to my family about it. I have I have a couple of friends who have had hyperemesis who now have children who I can talk to about it. Mm. Um, I'm quite open about if I'm having a bad day. I guess that's a way that social media is good, yeah. where I can go, I feel really nauseous today, and it's all come back, and it, it sounds a bit... Um, melodramatic almost to go I feel nauseous today and now I want to you know hide in bed because it reminds me of how bad I felt yeah Um, but I know there are other people that feel like that
0: yeah and not even just with hyperemesis I mean I I spoke on social media maybe two years ago about uh, walking into Tesco and seeing a brand of baby food that I had fed my daughter years earlier and it's totally triggering me and taking me back to yeah. that kind of early period where you know she was she was just weaning and I was obviously you know in the depths of PND and just seeing that on the shelf instantly took me back A flashback and just just the
1: memories and associations are so strong. I think I think for trauma, whatever in whatever package trauma comes, recognizing that and. And the impact it can have, and it taking you by surprise because it yeah. often does oh, take does. you by surprise, and yeah. it's horrible. It throws
0: you, doesn't it? Yeah, and It kind of it really almost does. like throws you off kilter for the rest of the day, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think that I think you're right. That's where going onto social media and talking about it can really help because yeah. it helps you process it, but also other people might be a bit like, "Oh, that's happened to me." Yeah. And then you, just, you start this conversation, which is helping everybody. Yeah, I've got this network of women who contacted me
1: when I had high premises and they were they were not talking to me as a doctor. They were talking to me as I'm a woman who's had high premises or is going through it too. Um, and our kids are now the same ages. You know, there's someone in Croatia, there's someone in Australia, there are wow. people in the US. And they're just women that were like, you know, we're here to listen or I know what it's like. And, yeah. that, and
0: that was really nice. Now, the first time that I ever came across hyperemesis was when Kate Middleton had it. Yeah, that's the same for a lot of people. Do you think that that was a blessing because it suddenly put it into the public eye and people knew about it and learned about it? Or has it been a bit of a curse in that people almost dismiss it as being, oh, well, Kate Middleton had that and it's just bad morning sickness and she was fine. Therefore, you'll be fine too.
1: Yeah, I think both. It's it's accessible for a lot of people. So if you can say, well, that that's what, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge had, and then people can go, oh, yeah, 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 okay, I, I know a bit more about it now. But then they also go, oh, well, it can't have been that bad, because, you know, she had all that staff and she's got three kids, so it can't have been that bad. Yeah. But then you go, remember that she missed her oldest son's first day of school because she felt so sick. How many mums would do that just because? Um, and she hasn't spoken about it herself, and I don't think she should ever feel under any obligation to, because we don't know how she dealt with the trauma.
0: We don't know how it's affected her. Um, so, yeah, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. Well, I think you talking about it today will have helped lots of people, so thank you very much for being my guest today. Not it's at been all. Thank you for having me big respect to ria for getting through that experience it does not sound pleasant at all does it um thank you for joining me today Uh, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review because it really helps other people find the podcast and i shall catch up with you next time